For those that don't know me, my name is Francois. I am the leadership director for Every Nation Chwane and also the executive leader here at the Halfot Congregation. And it is my privilege tonight to introduce our guest speaker. I've known Pastor Gregory for a decade. So when I say that I know that he loves Jesus, that he has a massive heart and compassion for people, it is not just something I received via email. I know that to be true. Pastor Gregory has a massive heart to see people, uh, to have people learn how to hear the voice of God and how to see Jesus in the Word. And when they go through, through troubled times, to see how Jesus provides the solutions. He's also a lover of music. He plays the harp, like a rock star plays the electric guitar. Uh, and he's a bit of a foodie as well, massive foodie actually, so living in Joburg's the perfect place for him. But he's the associate pastor in Rosebank. He oversees the evening service, so he's here sacrificially tonight. And he also leads the prophetic and the pastoral ministries. So could we receive him as such? And as the Bible says, then receive that blessing. Can we? Can we give him a hand as he comes up? Watch out for the water there. So this morning you had one cup of water, so tonight you have a double blessing. Yes. Yes. Amen. Thank you. Okay, can we pray? Can we stretch out our hands and just receive Pastor Gregory? Father, I thank you for every gift in this man's life, just for his very life, Lord. Thank you for the calling and the way that he served you and, and for 20 years just given himself and poured himself into people. So Father, I pray that, that his heart before you this week would be a fragrant aroma. And so would the word be that is preached tonight. Holy Spirit, may you lift up Jesus. May you cut hearts tonight. May you show them what you want to show them and bring them to the cross. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Francois. Well, good evening, everybody. What a joy to be here. Um, I've actually been in Chinese since uh, Friday night. We were doing the citywide prophetic training. Who, who in this congregation made it to that? Yes, wasn't that good? It was amazing. Hey, the Lord just did incredible things. And then I had the honor and privilege of preaching to the morning service. And I'm really, really excited to be here with you tonight. And so I do want to do three prophetic words. We call it call-outs or pop-called prophecy. And that's when we just pick somebody in the, in the crowd and we trust them for a word. But I just want to explain my process of that, right? Sometimes when you see somebody doing that from the stage, you know, it feels like maybe the hand of God is manifesting and pointing at somebody or I'm seeing an angel hover or something like that. That's not how I work. Um, we access the gifts of the Holy Spirit through faith. We ask and we trust, and then the Lord partners with us and uses us that way. And so when I do this, what I'm doing is I'm just looking in the crowd, and I'm just picking somebody, and I'm asking the Lord for a word for them, and then I share it. Does that make sense to you? Um, so let's see. Uh, the lady in the, you've got the jean jacket on. Yes, you. <laughs> what is your name? Lerato. Lerato. Lerato, you love Jesus. You love him so, so much. Um, but there's something very interesting about you. You love Jesus so much. You pour your heart out before him. But there's this English word, you are feisty. Do you know what feisty means? You're not scared. You will stand up for yourself. If somebody wants to pick a fight with you, you will take them. <laughs> 
And Lord, the Lord has given you an incredible brain. There is just an intelligence on you. And there's a, the, the English word savvy. There's something, you just understand how the world works. Like you're not taken for a fool ever. Like if somebody comes to you and they start talking, you can immediately say, this is nonsense. Or wow, this person is authentic, right? That's actually a gift of discernment that the Lord has put in your heart. And I feel like you're in a, you're in a phase where you're busy making some decisions for your life. What's the next step, Lord? Where do we go from here? You're starting to think about your future. And I feel like the Lord's say, saying to you tonight, He is holding your future in His hands. He's bring it to pass. He sees your, the, the love you have for Him. You pray, you pray and you pray and you pray. You wake up in the middle of the night and you pray and you pray and you pray just to have fellowship with Him, just to talk to Him. You're not even really asking things. You're just talking to Him, telling Him about your life. And Jesus loves that about you and He's heard those prayers. And so as you're making those decisions, keep trusting Him. There are gonna be opportunities that open for you that you're gonna think, Lord, this is too big. I don't know how we're gonna afford this. I don't know how we're gonna go. The Lord is saying He's gonna show you the path. He's going to show you how he's going to provide. He's going to bring those things into your life so that you can go to the places you feel you are called to, so that you can end up in the positions you feel that the Lord has called you to. And I feel like God has given you influence. As you grow, as you mature, as you see the Lord open those doors, influence is gonna increase upon your life. And I feel like you've got a message for Southern Africa, not just South Africa, but for Southern Africa. There's something that you're carrying, that you articulate, that you speak about all the time. Your friends know how passionate you are about this thing. And the Lord's saying, is going to open doors to make it heard, and it's going to change the way people think as you share that stuff. Amen. God bless you. <laughs> uh, let's have a look here and see. Goodness me, the, the gentleman in the red shirt, the back there, <laughs> what's your name? Armand. Armand. Am I saying it right? <laughs> Fantastic. Amant, you're an interesting guy. <laughs> you're a cool guy. You come across really cool, laid back. Um, you like having fun. You like hanging out with people. You enjoy laughing. I think you're a bit of a prankster and a jokester. Um, you, <laughs> you really love laughing and you'll do anything to get a laugh, right? Um, but you know what? There's actually something quite deep about you because you're a faithful friend. You are a very faithful friend. And there's also something about you that's interesting because you see when people aren't doing well. And I feel like the Lord's given you a gift of encouragement. The Bible calls it exhortation. And exhortation means to build up, to encourage, but to build up. And with all the pranking and laughing, that actually blesses people and encourages them. But when you see one of your friends or somebody you know who looks a bit down or you realize they're going through a tough time, you come alongside them. It's so easy and simple. You don't make a big scene about it. You just you know, take them out for a coffee. You just go over and you chat to them and, and it makes them feel better. And I feel like the Lord wants you to know that's a ministry. That is not a, a, a small thing. That's not an insignificant thing. That's a ministry. That's something Jesus did. Jesus encouraged people. Jesus went alongside the brokenhearted and he lifted them up and he healed them. And there's words of wisdom in your mouth because when you take them out and when you, you go hang out with them, yes, there's lots of fun and laughter, but there's also these moments where you tell them what you see in them. And that's what exhortation is. And you've been asking the Lord, what's my purpose? <laughs> what's the ministry you want me to do? I want to do something significant, God. But encouragement is an aspect of who Jesus is. 
In fact, encouragement is one of the aspects of prophecy, strengthening encouragement and comfort. That's, that's the purpose of prophecy. That's the parameter of prophecy. And you've got one of them as a gift. And so God wants you to know it literally is a ministry. And if you put your faith behind it, if you actually take what you're hearing tonight and tomorrow you think, Lord, who can I encourage today? Who's gonna, you're gonna be amazed at what God does. And I feel like you're actually gonna begin to prophesy. You wanna prophesy, right? You wanna move in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And if you just step out in that encouragement, you're gonna be amazed at how the Holy Spirit comes and begins to give you revelation so that you can share in an even deeper way. Amen. God bless you. Uh, the lady on the end here with the Boston on her shirt. What's your name? Simone. Simone. Awesome. Do you know what, Simone? You're an absolute sweetheart. You are such a sweetheart. God loves you because you love people. You love coming along and just helping people. You love just being useful, you know? And wherever you go, you try and be useful. You figure out something to do that's practical and that's gonna make everything a little better. And you think it's just a little thing. You just think it's what you should do. But you know, I'm, I'm reminded of Martha in the Bible and usually we give Martha a bit of a hard rap, right? Because, you know, Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, but Martha made the food. <laughs> if, if everybody was a Mary, nobody would ever get a sandwich. It's as simple as that, you know? But you that person who makes sure somebody gets a sandwich. And there's a deep consideration on you. There really is a deep consideration on you. And I feel like you've got a mix of, of servant-heartedness and a mix of, mix of mercy. It's a beautiful combination. Because when you show, you show mercy by serving. And I feel like often in your life, people come to you and they tell you the worst moments of their life. And it kind of upsets you and you cry. And sometimes it's hard for you to let it go, but that's what mercy does. Mercy invites people who've struggled, who've suffered, who've felt deep pain because mercy makes them feel better. Mercy actually heals their heart. And Jesus was the most merciful person that's ever walked this planet. It's not a small thing either. It's not insignificant. It's powerful. And you don't have to feel pressure to counsel them. You don't have to feel pressure to tell them what to do. What you just do is do what you do. You give them a sandwich. You give them a hug. You make them a cup of tea. You tell them it's going to be okay. Because when they walk away, they feel like it is going to be okay. And so don't make yourself small in that thing. And just like Amon, put your faith behind that thing. Trust the Lord. Lord, who needs mercy today? I'm going to bring it. I'm going to go there. Because you can carry it. And when it feels like traumatic and you don't know how to let it go, just go to Jesus. You give it to him. It's not your responsibility to fix or heal. And he'll heal you, right? I feel like right now there's something going on in your family that's concerning you. And it's a big thing. But the Lord's hearing your prayers and he's saying, I'm, I just see him putting his hand over that. He has been all along. And right now you're not sure where it's going to end, but the Lord's saying, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to be present the whole way through that thing, and you're going to have a testimony. Your family's going to have a testimony. So just keep praying. God's going to do something amazing there, okay? Amen. So if you've got your Bible here tonight, or if you use your phone, or whatever you read the Bible on, won't you turn to John chapter 8, and we're going to start reading from verse 2. John chapter 8, verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. 
The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And so the religious leaders have found this woman who has committed adultery, and they throw her at the feet of Jesus. And they're not interested in her. They don't care about her. All they're doing is trying to make a situation where they can catch Jesus out because they know that he's compassionate. They know that he's kind. They know that he shows mercy. But they come to him and say, the law of Moses says we must kill her. What do you say? That's all they're interested in. They want to see what Jesus is going to do. And Jesus does something really strange, right? He bends down and begins to write on the ground. I want to know one day in heaven what he wrote. <laughs> I've heard a preacher say, what if he was writing the na their names on the ground? <laughs> because it's hypocrisy, right? He's actually pointing out the hypocrisy. She's accused of adultery. By the very definition of the word sinner, she is a sinner in every single way. She sinned morally. She sinned culturally. She sinned religiously. She is an absolute sinner. But think about the sin of adultery. Can you commit it by yourself? Where's the man? Why isn't he thrown on the ground? Surely if the law Moses wrote is true, then it must apply to anybody who commits adultery, right? And so Jesus sees their hypocrisy, and he calls them out on it because he bends down and he writes, and they keep asking him, what are you going to say? They're demanding an answer. And Jesus stands up with all the wisdom of God on him, and he says, whoever doesn't have sin here, you can throw the first stone. You go ahead and do it. And then he bends down and writes again, and I think he's writing down the names of those men because can we get honest tonight? This is a euphemism. She's a prostitute. So who in that crowd has made use of her services? And the reality of where this woman is in culturally is what, what we understand is that without being covered by a man, a woman had a place in society. If she wasn't married, she couldn't feed herself. She couldn't feed her children. And there's this moment in the Old Testament where the people harass Moses to the point where he it's not a law of God, but he allows certificates of divorce to be issued for certain situations, right? But they've manipulated that because that's what the religious leaders do. And what they've done is they've allowed a man to put his wife away for certain things. And some of them, I don't, can't tell you all of them, but some of them are just nonsense. 
Some of them are just because he's tired of her and he wants a new woman. Can you see the hypocrisy again? Because there's no certificate for a woman to put away her cheating loser husband. <laughs> and that's what's probably what's happened to this woman. She's been forced into a situation and a circumstance where she feels like she has to do whatever it takes to stay alive, where she doesn't know that God loves her, where she doesn't understand that there might be another way to live. And so she's done the only thing she can think of to do to stay alive. And now the very people she served have brought her as an example to Jesus. And like I said, she is a sinner. Nobody's going to disagree that she is a sinner. It's so interesting to me that it says one by one they begin to leave after Jesus says, if you have no sin, you go right ahead, you throw the stone. It says it starts with the older ones. They've had a lot more time to sin. <laughs> and then Jesus says to her, who is condemning you? Why does Jesus say this? You've got to think, the Bible doesn't tell us everything. You need to interrogate scripture. You need to ask questions. You need to think about the human reality that's playing out in every situation. Why does Jesus ask her that question? So she will say, no one. Jesus is restoring her in this moment. All that shame of her sinful life, every lie she's believed about herself, everything she's internalized about herself that says all you're worthy of is prostitution. You don't have what it takes. You're not good enough. You'll never amount to anything. She believes that. That's why she's doing that. And in a moment, Jesus says, who is condemning you? Now think about that. It's not an accident that those words are used. Who is condemning you? How does she answer it? She says, And then he says something so beautiful. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now think about that for a minute. She is a sinner. By God's own righteous law, she has sinned. But Jesus does not condemn her. Can you see how he's restoring her? How he's showing mercy. His love is poured out on him, on her. That's what we celebrated last weekend, right? the greatest act of love the universe has ever seen. Yes, victory, yes, freedom, yes, all of those amazing things. But the greatest demonstration of love the universe will ever see, where the Son of God gave himself so that we could be cleansed and washed and made holy. Why? So we could enter the presence of the Father at will. Anytime we want to, without having to go through a million rituals and make all kinds of weird sacrifices, Jesus became the final land sacrifice so we can have access to our loving Father, so we can have relationship with Him. And one of the reasons I love this story so much is that Jesus is so tender, He is so merciful. He puts no shame on her. He puts no condemnation on her. He puts no condition on her. He just loves her. And I love the story because if there ever comes a day where my sin is exposed, <laughs> if there ever comes a time where I have to tell everybody what my worst things in the world is, I know Jesus is going to treat me exactly the same. 
And I hope you come to love the story for exactly the same reason, that if there ever comes a day where your worst sin is exposed, that's how you will be treated. Because it's Jesus, right? But he says something interesting. He says, neither will I condemn you. But then he raises the standard. He gives her a purpose to live by, but now go and sin no more. And so you guys are starting a new sermon series that is entitled uh, The Resurrected Series, right? It's very good that it comes after Easter. And the title of this sermon is Resurrected Me. And Romans 6 verse 10 to 11 says, it's talking about Jesus. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so the first thing we have to understand about the resurrected me is that the resurrected me is dead to sin, but alive to God. You see, this woman came to Jesus dead in her sins. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's how she comes to Jesus. What does it mean to be dead in your sins? When you are dead in your sins, you have no concept of anything but being able to sin. Because of her situation, because of her circumstance, because of the shame that was piled on this woman, she couldn't even begin to conceive that there was another opportunity for her, that there was another way to live. She was dead to her sin, dead in her sin. There was no other option for her. And that's how we were before we came to Jesus. We were dead in our sins. Anything we did was just going to end up being sinful. You see, the way the world tries to deal with sin, and can we be honest, the way we try to deal with sin is we start justifying it. I need to feed my kids. I need to make a way for myself. So I know adultery, prostitution is sin, but I've got to do it because if I don't, how will I survive? Now, there's some fact in that. There's some truth in that. But in God, there is so much more opportunity. And so the world justifies sin. The world says it's not so bad. It's not so bad. It's not murder. I'm not really hurting anybody. So what's the problem? And we in the church do the same thing. And the reason we do that is because I believe that the reason we sin is because we have believed a lie about ourselves. We've believed lies about God. We've believed lies about how the world works. The lies we believe about ourselves basically boil down to, I don't have what it takes. I'm not good enough. I won't be loved. I won't be cherished. I won't get opportunity. In the church, we Christianize those lies. Yes, God is love, but he loves other people more than me. Yes, I know God forgives, but you know what? You don't know how bad I've sinned. And the problem with that is, is when we believe a lie about ourselves, we live like it's true. Who in the room has ever been lied to? I think we're in good company tonight. Anybody been told a lie? What happened when you found out it was a lie? (laughs) Everything crashed and burned, right? But while you believed the lie was true, you lived like it was true, right? Made decisions, made choices, went ahead like it was true. 
And that is the problem with believing a lie. When we, if I believe that I am not loved, I live like it's true. And what that means is as a Christian, I come to this beautiful service, I sing these beautiful songs, I raise my hands, Jesus loves me. I'm gonna shout his praise to the earth. But when I go out there, I live from the lie. I read the word of God and it astounds me and I see the compassion of Jesus and I want it, but then something happens and I live from the lie. It becomes our identity. From a biblical perspective, the the definition of identity should be the truth I believe about myself. That's what it should be, the truth that God speaks of me. That's what my identity should be. But in reality, our identity becomes the lie I believe about myself. And I will make every emotional decision on that lie, and that's why we want to sin. Because if I believe that I will never have love, I will go and find love anywhere I think I will find it. And I will always drop the bar, like this woman. The Bible calls that fornication when I go and look for love in a place I shouldn't, just so I will feel loved. And it lasts for a moment. You know, Paul says the pleasure of sin lasts for a moment. If there was no pleasure in sin, we wouldn't bother with it. (laughs) And the pleasure is that it makes me feel like I've, I've left the lie behind for a moment. We received a word about idolatry, and the issue of idolatry is this. It's anything I put between myself and God that I go to for comfort, that I go to for love, that I go to for affirmation. That's what an idol is. And all of us do it because we believe lies. And so it's hard to go to God because going to God means I have to be vulnerable. Going to God means I have to acknowledge the lie. I can't just live in my lie. You know, I realized a while ago that the human heart loves law. Some of you are going, I don't like law. Every human heart is very attracted to law. Why? Because I get to tick a box. I get to figure out the shortest possible route to pleasing God. The second I start doing that, I lower the bar. Justifying sin. It's not so bad. It's not murder. And we love law because law is all about me. I get to see that I'm right. But what God wants is relationship. And if you've ever been in any kind of a relationship, you understand that relationship is costly. If you want to be in any kind of true relationship, you have to show up with every fiber of your being because the other person will quickly tell you that you are not present. I see all the ladies smiling. Relationship costs everything. Relationship with with God costs so much that Jesus shed his last drop of blood, that he ripped his body apart. He paid the greatest price for us to have relationship with him and the Father. But we want law. We just want the shortest, quickest way possible. But relationship gives us so much more. And so how do we deal with this lie? How do we get rid of this lie? We embrace truth. Who is truth? Jesus Christ. 
Isaiah says this in chapter 5, verse 20. He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You see, this is when we embrace law. We decide what is good and bad. We decide what is righteousness and sin. And the second we do that, we are just diving deeper and deeper into our lie. But that's sometimes the only way we can feel we're going to live and cope. God is the only one who decides what is right and wrong. And we have to stand by that standard. And this brings us to the definition, oh goodness, of the word sin. Um, In both the Greek and the Hebrew, in both the New Testament and the Old Testament, the word sin implies that we are missing the mark. Those of you who shoot, who hunt, you understand, you want to hit, I imagine, (laughs) right in the middle, the bullseye, like right in the middle. I don't do much shooting myself. But sin implies that we're aiming for the bullseye, but we keep missing it. We're not living up to the standard. That is the definition of sin. Do you see why we want to justify and pull the standard down? But God is the only one who decides what is right and wrong. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what I say to myself behind closed doors. God is never fooled. God never feels any pressure (laughs) to abide by what we want. And the issue of God's standard is that it's impossible. Have you figured that out yet? Because God's standard is absolute perfection. He is holy. He is light and there is no darkness in him. That's bad news, right? <laughs> Are you all feeling like, oh. But he has the good news. Jesus is holy. Jesus is perfect. Jesus has met the standard. He has hit the mark every single time. And why that is good for us is because Colossians 3 verse 3 says, for you have died and your life is hidden in Christ. If you are hidden in Christ, what does God see when he looks at you? Not a trick question. Somebody tell me. Who does he see when he looks at you? Who is perfect? Your life is hidden in Christ. You are dead. Did you know that? You are dead. The second you made Jesus Lord of your life, you died. And now your life, your resurrected life is hidden where? Are you getting this? See, your perfection means nothing to God. Isaiah prophesies again. (laughs) We need to fix this. Um, (laughs) Let's put them on the floor. I will need it in a moment. Isaiah 64 verse 6a says, (laughs) We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are are like a polluted garment. We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds like a polluted garment. What is he saying? Your attempts at perfection mean nothing to God. Anything you wave at God saying, look at me, Lord, I'm good enough. Look at what I did, Lord. He's like, that's a stinking rag. Get it out of my face. God is not impressed at your attempt to be holy, at my attempt to be holy. Couldn't care less. Who is he impressed by? Jesus. Where is your life hidden tonight? (laughs) 
in Jesus. And you see, the issue of sin is that there's two kind of extremes of sin. There is self-righteousness on the one hand, and there is complete depravity on the other. Self-righteousness is me justifying sin, is me going, Lord, I attend every single service. I'm at every prayer meeting. I give my tithe and thinking that that makes you holy. That is sin. There's no Jesus in that. There's no redemption in that. Depravity is just doing anything I want, whenever I want, however I want. You can be morally perfect and a stinking sinner to God. Because your self-righteousness is like a filthy rag before the Lord. That's what Isaiah tells us. That's what God tells us. And yet we keep striving to prove ourselves good enough because of the lie we believe. Everything comes back to that lie that we believe. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Of God, whether it's self-righteousness or depravity. And for Christians, it's probably some weird scale in between, right? We have missed the mark. We have not hit the bullseye. And so the resurrected me is dead to sin and alive to Christ. And there's this mistake we make in the church where we think that I have to work on the dead to sin before I can enter the alive to Christ. Anybody ever made that mistake? I have. If I can just stop sinning, then I'll be... No, they happen at exactly the same time. You see, when you said, Dear Lord Jesus, I come into my life, I give you my life, you received the fullness of who, of who he is. You got it. Do you know that right now you are free? I've realized that I think freedom is when I pray enough, read my Bible enough, get holy enough. No, the second Jesus entered my heart, he set me free. You see, we're very good at believing in the church, but we're not that good at receiving. Every one of you know in, with all your heart that Jesus rose from the dead, right? None of you are going to question that. You believe it. Have you received it? You are free. You are free. What are you doing with your freedom? Are you living free? Or as Paul says, have you come back under the yoke of slavery by trying to be good enough? You already are. Where is your life hidden? And so we need to do way more work in living to God, living to Christ, dead to sin but alive to Christ. We must focus on being alive to Christ. As I've said, the resurrected me is hidden in Christ. And so how, how do we live like the resurrected me? Romans 6.23 again, for the wages of sin is death. We know that, right? But are you aware that it continues and says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift of God. Why are we trying to earn a gift? It's not a reward. There's, no, there's nothing we could do on this universe that would ever make us good enough to deserve it or earn it. It is a free gift. And so how do we live 
the resurrected life by living the repented life. Acts 3 verse 19 says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And so where does repentance start? Repentance starts with confession. The very first Bible verse I learned as a, as a young child in my Baptist Sunday school was 1 John 1 verse 9, and it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do we live the resurrected life? We begin to confess our sins to God. Now, I'm going to say it again. If you know it, say it with me. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what kind of unrighteousness? What does all mean? Alles. (laughs) Basis. Absolutely everything. It doesn't say unrighteousness, but not including sexual immorality. Unrighteousness, but not murder. It says what? All unrighteousness. And so confession is how God allows us to come and acknowledge our sin. The word confession in English literally just means to acknowledge. When we baptize people in, in, in Every Nation Rosebank, we've got a little formula that says, on the confession of your faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen, right? And before they get baptized, we make them give their confession of the faith. They tell us why they're getting baptized. So what does that word confession mean? To acknowledge. I'm acknowledging what I believe. And so that's what confession is, to acknowledge this is sin. Can you see? We're not justifying sin anymore. We're not pretending it's not sin. We're not lowering the bar. We're just coming to God and saying, I had bad thoughts. I had bad intentions. I did bad things. And it's sin. And for me, we want to make these things so big and intense. And they are. It's very important. But the issue is agreement. Sin is about agreement. When I agree with myself when I agree with the world, when I agree with the enemy, when I agree with other voices, other people, I'm going to sin. And confession is an acknowledgement. It's an, it's an agreement with God. This is sin, and I'm seeing it sin. And when we acknowledge our sin, we then understand we need forgiveness. If you don't know that you're sinning, you will never need a savior. People out there don't think they're sinning. That's why they're not interested in Jesus. But we are the beloved of God, right? We're the redeemed of Jesus Christ. We understand that if we say this is sin, he's the only one who can save us. And so we go to him and we say, Lord Jesus, cleanse me of my sin. I know this is sin and I'm sorry, Lord, and I don't want to do it anymore. And we ask for forgiveness. But confession and repentance are not the same thing. We cannot repent without confession. But in the Bible, the understanding of repentance in the Old Testament is to move back towards, to come back to. You've missed the mark, you've moved away from God, you've dropped the standard, and then you realize, I need to come back to God, to turn back to God. In the New Testament, it's kind of the same thing, but it takes it even further. It's the Greek word metanoia. In English, we have a word metamorphosis, to be completely transformed, to be completely 
changed. And it adds not just the coming back, but changing your thinking and your feeling. Now, we have this thing in our modern Western world where we think feelings and thoughts are two completely different things. Um, I'm busy studying counseling, the highest certificate of counseling through SATS, the, the South African seminary, and uh, they made us they gave us research on emotions, and there are actually scientific theories about emotions. I won't bore you with them, but the bottom line is we feel in our brain because we think in our brain. Thoughts and feelings generate each other. There's all kinds of theories that thoughts start first and then feelings, and there's some that say feelings start first, but what they all agree on is that this is where we feel. We don't feel here. This is where our blood gets pumped through our body to keep us alive. And so, Cognition is the issue. If I start thinking something, I'm going to feel something. If I start thinking, Pastor Greg is rebuking me tonight, it's not going to be long and you're going to be feeling some stuff towards me, right? As the kids say, you're going to be catching feelings, but not the good ones. <laughs> so it happens here. And so when the New Testament brings in the word metanoia, it's saying we have to change our thinking and our feeling. And so that is what repentance means in the New Testament. It's not just turning back. Yes, we must turn back to God, but then we need to change our thinking and feeling. And confession is how we begin to change our thinking and feeling. Like I said, if you cannot acknowledge that it's sin, you don't need a savior. And then there's this process of renewal that happens. And we all know Romans um, 12 verse 1 to 2 very well, right? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual war warfare. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind. Change your thinking. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so the resurrected me happens when I confess and when I repent. And he has the beautiful thing. There's no work in that. There's no strife in that. Because Jesus is your Lord and Savior, because he died on that cross and rose again on the third day, you have full access to him. Just like that woman caught in adultery. He's going to come and show you mercy. He's going to come and say, my child, yes, I love you. I want to help you. Let's work on this together. And there's a process that's described in Romans 12 verse 1. It's not, metamorphosis takes time. You know, the, butter, the, the worm turning into a butterfly. It's not like, <laughs> there's a process. But we have to get into the process. And because we are resurrected, we can do that. And part of the process is to understand the lie that I believe. Because the issue of the lie is that it brings shame. And shame makes us invulnerable. All we want to do with shame is hide it away. We never want anybody else to see it. We never want God to see it. We don't even want to look at it. And so we hide it away and we start pretending all kinds of things. But that shame keeps getting triggered and it causes us to make decisions that are bad. It causes us to choose idols instead of going to God because God sees everything. And when we stand before him, we feel naked. He's not rebuking us. He's not shouting at us. It's just he's so holy when we stand in front of him, we see how unholy we are. But remember, your life is hidden 
in Christ. And so maybe as I've been speaking tonight, when I started speaking about lies, maybe you started realizing the lie you had. Maybe you felt a little triggered. Maybe your shame manifested a bit. I don't know where you are tonight. But what I do know is that like that woman caught in adultery, Jesus wants to come to you and say, there is no condemnation. I don't condemn you. He wants to come to you tonight and say, I love you, my child. He wants to come to you and say, here's my mercy, but here's my grace. Let me help you. If you'll talk to me about it, I'm going to give you strength. I'm going to help you. In, in the prophecy, our brother spoke about sharing with other people. So powerful. James writes and says, confess your sins to one another. Why? So you can be healed. Not so you can be shamed. Not so you can be directed with an inch of your life. But so what? You can be healed. In English, we've got a little idiom that says, you know, a burden shared is halved. In Jesus, when you share your burden, he carries it all for you. And maybe some of you realize you just need to confess. You just need to acknowledge, Lord, I've been running away from this, but this is sin. Lord, I haven't thought about it, but I know this is wrong. And the issue isn't right or wrong. The issue is who is Jesus? Who are you going to agree with? Because the issue of repentance is agreement. Sin is agreement. I've agreed outside of God. Repentance is simply, God, I agree with you and I want you. And I want to do it your way. And so for a moment, won't you close your eyes and just bring your heart to Jesus. If you need to confess, this is the moment. If you've recognized that lie, bring that to Jesus. Start telling him. Don't let your shame keep it buried anymore. He's going to set you free tonight from some of that. If you know what the lie is, you just tell him, God, I don't think I'm lovable. God, I don't think I'll ever get what I want in life. I don't think anybody will be my friend. I don't think I'll amount to much. Just tell him that because he's going to come and speak truth to your hearts. If you're at a point where you need to repent, then tell him that it's done and you're going to live differently. Wherever you are, you just say and do whatever you need to do with Jesus. And the Holy Spirit, as we do this, just come and fill our hearts. Pour your grace out right now, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, we receive your forgiveness tonight. We receive it, Lord, and we are grateful for it. And Lord, we ask that you change our thinking, that you change our feeling, that from tonight, God, something will be different in our life, Lord God, that we're not going to live from lies anymore, Lord. We're going to choose your truth. And when we see a lie in our heart, we're going to run to you in relationship. We're going to run to you with vulnerability. Holy Spirit, thank you for the work that you are doing and will continue to do. And I thank you, God, that it's going to just continue in every heart, in every mind tonight. I feel like God's saying to a couple of you, I am your strength. You're trying to be strong on your own. You're trying to do it on your own, but I am your strength. Lean on me tonight. For some of you, I hear Jesus saying, I see you. I've always seen you. You are not invisible in any way. I see you and I've got plans for you. I've got hope for you. I've got a good outcome for your life. I hear Jesus saying for some of you, no, you have not failed me. You keep trying, you keep coming back. 
Keep doing that, my child. Don't give up because you have not failed. Father, we are so grateful for your love tonight, Lord. Thank you for what you've done, Lord. Keep working in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, Greg. I really just feel that some of you want to stay in this space. So we will give you the opportunity to just stay um, in this space. And if you just want to sit and keep on praying and still um, processing and asking God for identity, you are welcome to. We as the prophetic team and the prayer team will be in front. So if you also need prayer, please come to the front and we'll pray with you. And you know, the rest of you have a good week. You guys can go have some coffee and I'll just like to pray for you guys as I send you out. Um, Lord Jesus, thank you for this this truth and reminding us, um, Jesus, that you died on the cross and that we have new identity and that, that we are hidden and that we are safe in you. And Lord, I just pray for everybody here as we are sending them out for this week. May they stay in that place wherever they go. I'm reminded of Psalm 23, we are, you give us a, a table um, and you prepare us a table and you prepare it this week for us, um, even in the world, in the world circumstances. So Lord, I just um, ask you to bless these people in front of me and may you just um, remind them over and over, give them places and um, opportunities just to be reminded of the identity they have in you. Amen.